0: Today, it's a great honor to teach the Word of God. And last week, we looked at the prodigal son, as it's called, and now I want to do part two. But as we're still, if we could go to the title slide, I have some of my notes on that. We can go back to that. Let me read some of the notes as we think about that that gives us the context. In Luke chapter 15, there's three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coins, and then the lost sons. And last week, we showed an old video of the first two parables, and then I preached on the lost sons, the first part of it. Now, the first two, there were 99, or 100 sheep, but 99 lost, one found. And then there were 10 coins, 9 lost, one found or one lost, lost and then found. And now we have just two lost sons, and we read about how the first was found. And before we go to the next slide, let me just say this also. If you want to have your finger in Acts, or excuse me, Luke 15 for this whole time, it says in verse 7, Luke 15, 7, keep this in mind. This is the theme of all three parables. Jesus said, I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Last week, I claimed that those 99 righteous don't exist. They just thought they were righteous. That would be the Pharisees and the scribes. And also look at Luke 15.10 while we're on this slide. In the same way, I tell you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that's our theme. Let me pray, and then we'll go into the last part of the prodigal son parable. Dear Lord, thank you for showing kindness to us. We didn't deserve anything. And just as that wicked son wasted and squandered everything, but yet you received him in this parable, and you receive sinners, we ask that you would just give us the humility to understand that apart from your grace, we're all as just as wicked as anybody you've ever received. Thank you for showing mercy, and give us wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's go to where we've left off. Now, we have a recording of that. I'll just give you a short synopsis. If you remember, the younger son demanded his share of the estate, which he had no right to demand. He not only was given it, he ran away, he wasted it. He didn't want fellowship with his father. He didn't want anything to do with his father. And this is a Middle East village that's based on a culture of honor and shame. So the prodigal, which means wasteful and profligate, just threw everything away, dishonored everybody. You couldn't be much more Dishonorable than what that person was. Where did he end up? He rejected table fellowship in the village with his father, where he had a relationship, he was loved, and he ended up as a young Jewish boy having table fellowship with pigs. And I mentioned I grew up on a pig farm, and uh, you don't want to have fellowship with pigs when they're eating. So what happened, just to reset the the stage for what this is all about, when the fellow is coming back, the prodigal is coming back, and he's prepared to do things to get things right, before he even got into the village, the father, everybody knows everything, in a small Middle aged village. I've got a lot of this research came from, by the way, Kenneth E. Bailey. The father dishonored himself, Ran, which a Middle East nobleman would not do. His robes, just kids run, dads don't. The father, rather than being dignified, allowed himself to be shamed and disgraced in order to meet one repentant wicked son who deserved nothing. And so that's where we left off. You can go back and still get that video and audio on the website. But now in verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now, the robe here, the Greek stole, indicates the finest. This is the robe that would indicate someone who had status, honor, dignity. And that's in Israel's history as well in the Old Testament. The ring was a signet ring. The signet ring meant that this person who wasted and destroyed a third of the family property and worth, and what was worse, dishonored everybody, the entire village, he is given a signet ring of power and authority and honor he doesn't deserve. Sons wore sandals, servants did not. So he brings out and honors the most dishonorable, wicked person that in that world they could ever think of. Why? Because Jesus is giving a parable showing why the people that welcomed him, that he welcomed and dined with, which were wicked sinners, and they were saying, he's with sinners, he can't be the Messiah. But yes, he was. He will be treated. Now that the father has run out to the edge of the village, hearing everybody knows everything, he honors the son by allowing himself to be dishonored. So rather than running the gauntlet of mockery, hatred, and everything that would have weighted him, they didn't dare do it. Because if they did so, they'd be dishonoring the father who was honorable in all of this. So let's consider some of the issues. And I've mentioned some of these already. Cultural considerations. The son was robed before they entered. The younger son, as I said, would would have faced mockery, a gauntlet of hatred, but now would be respected. There's nothing else they could do. The prodigal did nothing to clean himself up. He came from having table fellowship with pigs. He didn't get cleaned up. He wasn't acceptable. He was defiled as badly as anybody could be defiled in their world. He still smelled like the pig pen. Pig pens don't smell well, in fact, very well, because I grew up on a pig farm, and actually they ran around and did whatever they wanted to do. But you probably know the Jewish people weren't too fond of pigs. And so this happened before in history, and Eric's preached about that in Matthew. God chooses and uses the things are, that are not in order to confound the things that are. And why I'm preaching this here when I'm in First Corinthians is, I believe that if we can't understand Luke-Acts and the honor-shame culture— and the progression of Luke-Acts, where we end up in Corinth, we won't understand Corinthians either. Because Paul wrote to them on the account of they were dishonoring people in the church that God had brought in, and we need to understand that. We'll go back to that when I next preach. And I mentioned here on the slide, Isaiah 61.10, you remember in Luke 4.18, when Jesus came into Nazareth, and opened up the scroll and began to preach as they handed it to him, he mentioned and cited Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he just cited the part that talked about the, the Messianic prophecy. And he, and he said, this is fulfilled today in your ears, and your hearing. What did they do? They took him out to throw, eventually throw him off a cliff, which didn't happen. But look at Isaiah sixty-one 10. I'll read it to you. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. So in the very passage that's cited in Luke 4, when Jesus came to Nazareth, we have an allusion to God here. By the way, God in Christ is the what the Father Illustrates here, God in Christ dining with sinners, the Messiah. He takes unclean, wicked sinners and, ro- and puts them with a the robe of righteousness. Do you deserve that? I know I don't. I didn't. Never did. So let's look at just quickly a couple things about Joseph and Esther in another cultural slide. The ring reminds us of Genesis 41, 42. For the sake of time, just jot these down. They're important. Genesis 41, 42. Pharaoh gave a ring to Joseph. That's an amazing story. How God used that which is not to confound the things that are. Joseph ended up in Pharaoh's household, and God used him for reconciliation. Esther, this is a reversal. Esther eight to eight eight and eight ten, the king's um, ring was taken from Haman and given to Mordecai. So that's another incidence of this. And there's a term from accounting called usufruct, and I don't claim to know a lot about that, but the right to exercise control over property given to the older son. So the younger son. When he's restored with a signet ring, having already lost property that had taken generations to accumulate, is given status in the family. He deserves nothing. This is so interesting and profound that when I first read this in about over a decade ago, it just blew me away. So the signet ring. This is restoration. What does this have to do with the gospel? Did you know that the church, the one new man, Ephesians 2.15, is comprised of Jews and Gentiles who didn't know Christ, who were lost and doomed, and God built us on the rock, gave us status? We studied that in Ephesians the inheritance rights. Why would we have any inheritance when all we ever did was hate God until he showed us grace? Let me cite something that I had in the previous sermon from 2009. As long as the father is alive, he has authority over the two-thirds that was left. Remember, the older sons. After the one-third was squandered by the younger son. The older son has use. Of it, but not the right of disposition. So the older son, we don't know what's going to happen yet. He had two sons. One ran away, disgraced the father, disgraced everything, comes back, the father receives him. So here's the older son. What's going to happen to him? Well, we better find out. Let's go to the next slide. And here's what the father, which, by the way, God in Christ, dining with sinners, the father goes and brings the son in a way that he's already been honored, so no one can stop that. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. Don't forget that word, celebrate. It's very important. It's not a real common word, but it's a key to understanding the gospel in a lot of ways. This fattened calf was a special grain-fed calf that was kept for the most joyous occasion than what happened in the life of a family in the Middle East in a small village. Why? Because you had to be very wealthy to take your grain, which a lot of times there would be shortages of, and feed the grain to the calf and keep fattening up the calf. And you couldn't do that very often or you'd lose everything. They saved it for this occasion, like the marriage of the oldest son, something like that. And so here is a special grain-fed calf, and that calf was killed and slaughtered, and that would feed 100 people or more, according to Bailey. And so once you did that, you had to have a big party because, as I said in 2009, no freezers, no Ziplocs, no, I mean, once you are going to have the beef, you better have a party because people need to eat the beef right then. So the young son brought shame, dishonor, disgrace to his father, to his family, to his village, and extended clan. But the father's grace brings blessing and joy and honor to the whole village. In the body of Christ, when one is honored, all are honored. There's applications of this that we'll get to in future sermons in 1 Corinthians. So what's the theme? Well, it continues on. Let's go to the fifth slide, which is joy when one sinner repents. Here is an important theme that ties all of Luke 15 together and really the New Testament concept of the church, which is where this is going. For this son of mine, Luke fifteen twenty four, New American Standard Bible, the son of mine was dead, and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. It's a joyous occasion. Now I did some work on this, and I think I'll leave some of the technical material aside for now. But come to life again, again likely doesn't need to be there. He was just dead. And now he's alive. The people that earlier in Luke came and dined with Jesus, there's so many parables about this. Remember they were having a special occasion for dignitaries and a sinful woman comes and weeps on his feet and her tears were anointing his feet and they were offended. If you knew what sort of woman this is, why is she here? That's what they're saying. You're dining with sinners. What's, you can't be the Messiah. You can't be one of our people. Why are you dining with sinners? That's what's being justified here and glorifying what God did in Christ. Because Jesus Christ came into this world to seek and save that which is lost. This joyous occasion calls for Celebration. Very stark contrast: death to life. That's conversion, beloved. Anyone who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has gone from death to life, from lost to found. What we don't know yet—if you never read this before—so what's the older son going to do? He—he still had the two-thirds inheritance. So those words celebrate, euphrono, is used 14 times in the New Testament. I looked that all up, and I don't think we have time for it. But it does show up in Revelation. It shows up in Acts. Out of those 14 uses, the most are in Luke. And what it turns out to signify is what we're willing to celebrate over reveals the content of our hearts. Where the celebration happens is important, too. This celebration's in heaven. If you want the celebration here, you might be disappointed because the world does hate us. So, I've listened to some other sermons on this. I heard John MacArthur preach on it when I was first researching this. I met him, and he mentioned Bailey, and I have to say that's what led me to, to look more seriously at Bailey because he was in the footnotes of my commentaries. And he was saying that we think this way. Well, there's a big revival and 10,000 people came now there. That's something to celebrate. But here's one at a time, sinners repent. There's a joy in heaven and it looks forward to future joy, the celebration that will happen in the Mary's Supper of the Lamb. Here's another use of this, if you want to jot this down, Acts 7.41. Stephen's defense before he was martyred. And this is the same word in the Greek, only as a participle. Acts seven forty one. At that time, Stephen said to the critics of Christianity that were hating him. Stephen said, at that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. What does that imply? Do you want to rejoice when a sinner repents or rejoice? Look at what I did. I made a calf. In the book of Revelation, I found this a number of times, and the rejoicing on earth was really bad. The rejoicing in heaven it was over something else, which was what God does with the redeemed. In Revelation 11.10, the wicked celebrate when the two prophets from God are killed by the beast from the abyss. Good, we got rid of those prophets. We'll celebrate. And so on. Let's, if you want to jot this one down, Revelation eighteen twenty. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Same idea. Are you celebrating over the defeat of God's purposes... Like the wicked, or do we celebrate about the joy in heaven that we don't even see yet? Another parable mentions this, but I got to move on. Let's go to the next slide, Luke fifteen twenty-five. Now his older son. Now the older son. If you're reading this for the first time, well, what's he going to say? This doesn't seem fair to the Pharisees or to us. But this is how God works. What about this older son? Now, his older son was in the field, and he came, and he drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. Literally, it's where we get our word for symphony. Here's a symphony, sounds, joyous singing, various instruments, a symphony of joy. He's out in the field. Why would there be a symphony of joy with all of this stuff going on? Now, this is a, a echo of what happened earlier in Luke 15. In excuse me. <coughs> in earlier in Luke 15, as I we played a tape of this last week, a video at Sunday school, this word in Gizo draw near. Sinners were drawing near in gizzo to Jesus to listen to him. But then in Luke 15, 2, the Pharisees and his scribes began to grumble. Gangudzo. It's used as the wilderness wanderers grumbling. When Moses gave them bread, we're sick of bread. Grumble, grumble, grumble. It's in John chapter 6. We're going to grumble. We don't like this. Here's the deal. The people in the world that don't know God do not appreciate his ways. And the rebels within Israel grumbled when Jesus gave them bread. So, in Gidzo draw near, gonguzzo, grumble. That's a cool word. It sounds like grumble, doesn't it? Murmur, 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 murmur. Can't you do something better? What do they want to do in John 6? Oh, let's make him king. We'll get free bread. So you kill the fatted calf for this worthless, disgusting rebel who smells like pigs? We'll see where this goes. I think you probably already read it. And he said, Well, what's the party? And so he summoned one of the servants, but the word is for a young boy, Pice. And the first time I preached this 12 years ago, it's typical. Any kind of party would be like that with multiple families. What do the young boys do? They run around, they climb fences, they go under trees, they do whatever they want. Because this is a party, it doesn't happen. Maybe once in a lifetime they saw a party like this. And so he summons, I believe, rather than a servant, the better translation... Somebody that he could, that would be answerable to him as the older brother. What's going on? So he began inquiring what these things could be. And and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. Safe and sound where we get our word for hygienics but in this context it denotes, in fact it's translated in the Old Testament for the word shalom, peace, well-being safely this is a celebration of salvation a salvation of the lost being a celebration of the lost being found the well-being of your brother is real, it's true, he's back the father's giving him the robe and the wing, the ring and f- kill the fatted calf. They're not going to have another c- fatted calf anytime soon in their world. It wasn't like it is now for us. So he, in uh, Genesis 43, 27, 28, Joseph asks about the shalom of his father Israel, the term when translated into the the Greek that was common amongst them at the in the first century is Hygiano, the same word. Let's go to verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. Look at, I have this highlighted in red on the slide. His father came out and began pleading with him. It's hard for us to realize how loving and compassionate the father in the parable really is. Because he's already gone out and reconciled with he did the work the village would have rejected the younger. Now he's actually pleading with the older son who was angry. So I did some research on that and what was expected? Some of this came from Kenneth Bailey. Pleading paracaleo is a common word, but it means exhort, comfort, be reconciled. I believe that the, the sense is be reconciled, my son, be reconciled. But he he also had already dishonored the father. Let me cite some things I have here from previous research. Now, this older brother has a role to play in such a celebration. Now. And he knows there is a celebration, he must come into that celebration and take on his role. He's the one who's supposed to be at the door when the guests come greeting them and saying, you honor our home by your presence. That's what he's supposed to do. You honor our home by your presence. That is what would be done In an honor shame world that they lived in. Jesus has seen this to the people who said, What are you doing eating with sinners? He welcomed people that they want to get rid of. Let me go on. Your honor my father, the older brother, is to go on and talk to each guest, and guest. Each guest and greets them personally and says, My father is so honored that you are here. If the older son, according to this research that I found from Bailey, refuses to go into this celebration, he has dishonored his father in front of the entire village. If he was to disagree with his father about what happens, that that has to happen later. You don't dishonor your father. What is one of the commandments? Honor your father and mother. He's already, the younger son dishonored his father but came back and the father received him. But the older doesn't want to do that. The father in this parable of the prodigal represents God in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. As I said, it's about Christ eating with sinners. Now, let's look at some other considerations. I may have covered this, but refusing to enter publicly shames the father before the entire village. Refusing to enter and accept the father's plea is open rebellion. Grace was offered to both sons on the same day. The one that came to the outskirts was Given honor, even though he didn't even get to finish his speech. If you weren't here, you can hear that. We have it on the website. The first part of this, and so the two thirds was at the disposal of the of the older son when the father died. But he didn't want that. He he was angry. I said this when I preached on this twelve years ago. It's not the son's decision what party he wants to throw. It's not, from the, it's not the older son's decision whether the younger son was worth being reconciled to the father. It was the father's grace and mercy and love that reconciled the younger brother, who represents in the parable the Pharisees. What about the older son? Do you think that any of us deserve God's mercy? I don't. I know I don't. I wonder why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, and that's why I'm going back here to make sure we understand that honor shame society, why is he so concerned that people honor one another who God received? That's the point. In our thinking as just ordinary people, we want people to earn honor, but God confers it by grace alone. Through his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to turn to this, I, quite, I quoted this last week, but in 2 Corinthians, Second Corinthians 5.20, 2 Corinthians 5.20, this is really an amazing gospel appeal. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us Paul said this, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. this Did you know that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul? He knows all this. I'll, I'll show you that as we go through Acts. He was there. He knew these teachings. He knew what happened in Acts. And the Corinthians were literally saying to Paul. We think you're not very good. We have somebody more spiritual than you. Shame on you, Paul. You're not good enough for us. Well, are you reconciled to God? Let's go to verse 29. We still don't know what his response is going to be. Here's his answer. Luke 15, 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, look, I'll come back to that. I have it highlighted, it's very important. Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. He forgot to say other than dishonoring you. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might, here's our word, celebrate with my friends. Celebrate. That's a gospel appeal right there. Who would we rather celebrate with? The world and its values? Or would we rather admit we have nothing going for us? We're dishonorable. We failed God. We deserve nothing. He is in Christ. Christ bore all the shame, all the mockery, all the hatred. In fact, it was worse than anything we could experience because he was the sinless Savior. He deserved none of it. The very creator of the universe who came into our world, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and was mocked, hated, spit upon, cruelly treated, endured shame that we will never be able to understand because none of us is sinless and none of us is God incarnate, only Christ, the only begotten, the unique one. That shame that he willingly bore was greater than we'll ever experience from anyone. But it can only be found by a gift of God through the gospel. Turn to Christ. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous. What did this older son think? I've never neglected the command of yours. Yes, he did. We know he did. Anyone who read this, who understood the culture of the Middle East, realized this is so dishonorable, what he did. Yes, the younger son asked for things that nobody would ever do. In fact, in Bailey's work, he points out he, he lived most of his life in the Middle East, son of missionaries, if I got it right. This just didn't happen. You just had to honor your fa- Family. I want to go back to this. Well, that's, that's an amazing contrast. All right, give me a goat, and I'll have, go have my own party. If you're going to give your fatted calf to this dishonorable younger son, I'll take a goat. You didn't even do that. Serving is literally slaved. I slave for you. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. That's the sin nature, by the way. We don't look at ourselves so badly. When we're lost, we think we're probably better than somebody, maybe Hitler. But the fact is, he didn't slave for his father and he didn't honor his father. Look, now this is something I didn't see when I preached the original sermon 12 years ago. That's the, it's not uncommon, but it's very significant in, in Luke. Look, Luke, Luke uses look, which is a demonstrative particle it's an imperative demonstrable (laughs) demonstrative particle and it's usually translated behold if you've been reading Luke and watching this how these things happen this is important so the sinful older brother says you look at me look dad look you're not fair but look at Luke 2.10 where the same Thing is said. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The angel said that about Christ. Luke 2 25, Simeon, the Holy Spirit's upon him, looking for the consolation of Israel. Behold, he said to Mary's mother, behold, this child is appointed. For the fall and rise of many in Israel assigned to be opposed. So learn to read the, what for the author's intent. That's what matters. If you read Luke X, the behold earlier points to Christ. The behold of the older son points to what he thinks is unfair. The Pharisees who rejected Christ. That was predicted in Luke. Behold, this child is appointed... For the fall and rise of many in Israel assigned to be opposed. People will say, if this was the Christ, why was he rejected by his own person, people? That's entered in the book of Acts by people like Stephen. Cultural considerations, slide 11. The son refuses to participate in reconciling his brother to the family. By the way, that was his duty. If there was a breach, he should already have been trying to get it settled as the older son, let's get this family together. He didn't do, want to do that. He didn't want the loss found. He does not address his father as my father, he, uh, he would, which was insulting and rude. The celebration reveals his hypocritical heart because he would have people he wanted retribution on his younger brother, but he didn't want it on him. That's what hypocrisy is. We want others to be judged, but we want mercy for us. It's not right. Let's go to verse, uh, slide 12, verse 30. Luke fifteen thirty. Notice how he says this. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. Now, we didn't even know that until he told us that, but it wasn't really earlier in the text, so I wouldn't believe him. He's making it as bad as he can. He devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fat calf for him. That's an insult to his father. He's saying to his father, you don't have the right to receive such a wicked brother back into your family and confer honor upon him. This son of yours. Now, that's not uncommon. It was really dishonorable then, we say things like that in families. And we, we if, if the kid does something bad, do you know what your son did? The kid does something really good. My son really came through. He had a home run. But in their world, that was really insulting. I'm not saying we should do that, but we tend to. The good, that's my, that was for me, the bad, well, your son But this is also accusatory. The older son claims to know the type of loose living, but he could not have known that. He didn't like what the father did, showing mercy to sinners. Don't lose sight of the picture. God in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. The Pharisees grumbled. And they continue to. Luke 15, 31 and 32. There's a term used throughout Luke Acts and most of the time, with rare exceptions, the term is day in the Greek, I have it on the slide. Luke implies that it's a divine necessity because in their world, it wasn't necessary to rejoice over this kid. Just let him come into town, let everybody hate him, throw stuff at him, mock him, treat him with shame, and run the gauntlet of the whole village, saying, you're not worth, you don't belong in our village. You sit here and let us heap shame on you, and if you earn your way back to something, then you can stay. That's what they would have done. So how can he say it's necessary? Let me read it. But he said to him, child. Now, after he said, your son, the father turns around and calls him Technon, which, in the vocative case, which is a direct address, And it's a term that's endearing. So he's showing grace to the older son, too. That's what we need to understand. Child, technon. My beloved child. I need to cite a teacher I had in seminary, Dr. Robert Stein. His commentary, he says this. Uh, By the way, I noticed this was 1992. 92, 93, he was one of my teachers. Robert Stein says, Jesus was making an affectionate appeal to his opponents through the parable in this instance there was still hope they would have a change of heart and that's what understanding the narrative layout shows that I had always missed until I read Bailey and I heard uh, Dr. John McCarter talking about this how it's, it, it ends here It's necessary. Also, does the older child say, well, you're right. I should have been there. I should have been rejoicing. I should have been part of this. He does it. We don't know what he does. The layout says there should be an ending here, but there isn't. It's sort of a reverse parallel where you go boom, boom, boom. Then you got the center point and back. The very last part's missing. Why is it missing? Luke's a great writer. Why does he leave it out? because Luke acts is a two-volume work. And I'm not sure why other than there will be some angry Pharisees, they repent. Can you think of one? How about Saul of Tarsus, scribes and Pharisees? He was a leader in Judaism. Or Luke actually, Luke acts leaves open the fact that at some later time, all of Israel that the remnant will be saved as well. There's a future for Israel. I'm just leaving that with you. It's open ending, But it was necessary to celebrate. What made it necessary to celebrate? Did they have the biggest revival they ever had? No. Did they have a giant auditorium filled with people who raised their hands, signed a card? No. 10,000 saved in one day. I think MacArthur mentioned that. No. One sinner who repents has celebration in heaven. It's already going on. I preached on, the, remember the thief on the cross today? I'll be with you in paradise. There's more to happen. There's still a marriage feast. So we would love to see the grand things, the, the profound, the powerful, the big building. The, but that's not what causes joy in heaven. It's one sinner who repents. So it's always necessary to celebrate because this sort of celebration is a preview of heaven. And if we believe that we deserve everything we think we have coming in this world, we have no clue about the gospel. All that God ever gives us, even the opportunity to live on His earth and breathe His air, time to repent, is of grace. Luke 19.10, I preached on a few weeks ago. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Remember Zacchaeus dishonored himself. He went up in a tree and he, he dined with Jesus. It was preached as part of the uh, the application because I was in 1 Corinthians 2.8, and that's what we'll go back to next time I preach. Let's have, we'll really only have one more verse to look at, but let's look at the applications. Next week is the next week we do the Lord's Supper. The first one is three the three parables in Luke fifteen show joy and rejoicing at finding the loss. One sinner who repents. There's joy in heaven right now. There's a lot of misery on the earth, but there's joy in heaven. So if we want to be part of that wouldn't it be right to preach the gospel to whoever? Nobody's so wicked that we, we don't know who's going to repent. If they do, they'll be joined heaven. They, most people think, clean yourself up, act right, and maybe you can come to church, and at some point maybe you might be okay. But, yes, we need to be forgiven, and we need to live lives that will reflect that God has changed us. But the size of the meeting on Earth doesn't tell us the validity of what's happening. The joy in heaven happens because one sinner repents. It's really sad. I we listened the other day. Diane and I were going somewhere. We were driving, and I she had to listen to me preaching from twelve years ago. I'm sorry, but we laughed a couple of times because I came to Christ and she did in a little. Pentecostal Church, and I don't know how many times i told the story. But in those days, they had altar calls, and it was pretty typical. And so the new Christians generally went up to the altar because we wanted to get up there and pray and be there if somebody came to Christ. So the organist is playing this nice, you know, just as, I don't know what it was. The same young lady was the organist the whole time that I was there, and I wasn't there that long. And I told a story about there was an evangelist who was calling people to repentance and she's playing around and, on the organ playing this nice song. In that sermon I said, it's easier to repent if there's soft music. At least that's what it seemed. And finally it was her. And she stopped playing and went down the altar and was crying out to God. And someone that had been in that church since the 30s. We just heard that Story I'd forgotten about it, but I remember it now. And one of the people that was a longtime person in the church since the 30s, this young lady was young, and when she saw the lady at the altar, she went down there and started browbeating her. Oh, so now you're going to be a Christian. Okay, if you're really repenting, I know what kind of music you're listening to. Stop it. I know what, how you're dressing. You better dress like a Christian. And we don't like this, and we don't like that. And I, I was a brand new Christian. Why, why would you do that to somebody who's coming to Christ? You don't know whether they might change. You know, religios- religiosity and being better than somebody else is gets cooked in eventually, as it did there. But if we remember that we deserve nothing... And that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. God is, who saves people is the God who sanctifies them. Don't offend any new Christian. It's really hard for them. And I felt bad for the, for the lady who was playing the organ. The young lady, she did come. And it was very humbling for her to get down off the organ and come down to the, say, "I need Christ." It's, it's really difficult sometimes for people that grow up in churches, and they, they're the first ones that will get rejected sometimes. And some never do serve God But when they repent. Can't we rejoice with heaven? If we can't rejoice in a sinner who repents, when are we ever going to rejoice? So summary slide, Luke fifteen seven. Out of all of, all of these are in Luke 15. Joy in heaven over one sinner repents. Two, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And three, it was necessary to celebrate and rejoice. The lost is found. The dead has come to life. We rejoice. Now, that's the final point. I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. I have more here than I can cover on this last slide in my notes. just a summary there. Next week is the Lord's Supper. I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians, which is where we'll go. I'll keep teaching Acts, Erickson, Matthew. I'll be back in 1 Corinthians. And if we don't understand the honor, shame, culture of the Middle East that is addressed in the Bible, then we can't understand what the issues are. And the Lord's Supper is a joyous celebration of Messianic salvation. What we do, we're joining heaven's joy, even though we don't really see it right now. We're joining heaven's joy. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I I realize right now, it's, it's just so bad in our country, probably, I think, around the whole world. It's bad. How often do you turn on the TV and see anything that would give you joy on the news? Every once in a while, but very rarely. And people come to church to rejoice because God is merciful to sinners. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper and sometimes we talk about the judgment passages. But I'll say this. We must never dishonor and shame each other if we have come to Christ. Because... God will honor people at the marriage supper. I would hate to be the one dishonoring somebody. And I know we all do it, and I do it. But what we need to know is the joy of salvation. I just want to cite one verse, you want to turn to it. 1 Corinthians 11, 22. And then 23 to 26, we read. That's for next week when Eric preaches. But 22. What? This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame, if you want to turn to that, it says shame those who have nothing. Now, in the world we live in, there's a lot more abundance than there was in the first century. So here it's economic, but it's really about honor and shame. So if God honored someone, like the woman who was immoral, who wept on his feet, or Zacchaeus, the tax farmer, who who was invited, or the wretches that came to the party that caused the grumbling, but they wanted Jesus, or the prodigal son, the younger one, who was as shameful as anybody's ever been, rejecting table fellowship with his father, but eating with pigs, that's pretty bad then that's the question we need to ask is this is it shameful to dishonor someone on grounds that aren't laid out in the Bible do you despise the church of God shame those who have nothing no it's not necessarily economics that might cause this it could be the early church read this and then got it all wrong. thought, oh, having nothing is honorable. So they took an oath of poverty and joined a convent or something. Or, No, it's about God giving something. You can't make yourself honorable by taking an oath of poverty. Nor can you make yourself honorable by anything. God does that. But here's what we need to know. And I want to say something I think I need to correct. Earlier, I said... There are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. I believe that's true, but I want to qualify it. In heaven, in the final state, there's a a process. God is the one who rewards people. So when we start deciding, now there's the great Christian, they're poor. There's the bad Christian, they're rich there's the great Christian, they're rich, or there's the bad one, they're poor, or this one's that way, or that one's that way. We don't know all these things. They have this gift, they have that gift. I'm this way, you're that way. We don't know. God determines that later. If we do it now, we don't know. Here's what we need to know. If God celebrates over the repentance of one sinner, can we join in the celebration? Maybe you haven't come to Christ. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from any plans like the younger son had. He's going to clean himself up. Can't do it. He's going to make himself honorable. You can't do it. The father confirmed the honor when he showed up, knowing that he was a sinner. Are you lost? Jesus Christ proved his claims by being raised from the dead. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved let's cl- close with prayer Heavenly Father you've revealed things here in your word that go against the very things that are important to us on this earth if we don't have you change our minds we're all guilty of dishonoring other Christians I know I've done it many people have done it but you, I know you want us To rejoice when someone repents. And right now, in this wicked world we live in, there's so much tumult and finger pointing and hatred and difficulties. I pray that you'd give us wisdom, a hunger to search the scripture, and a desire to celebrate when someone is saved, and a motivation to preach the gospel. And we need wisdom, Lord, so as we go forward, we can search the scriptures and learn from each other. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.